podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand, and we are on episode nine. Today, we are looking at the underlying element of social justice theory. And in each episode, we take a different underlying element of the psychobiological approach to couples therapy, and we explore it with an expert in that element or theory. So today, we are taking up social justice theory. And if you're like me, you didn't really think much about social justice theory when it came to your therapy practice. And it uh, is a pretty new idea um, for a lot of therapists. But what's funny about it and what this episode really explores is that, of course, social justice plays such a big part in our, not only in our, in our, in our psychotherapy practices, but in our everyday lives. This idea of reciprocity, of fairness, of giving and receiving, and what lies between giving and receiving. What is that, that, uh, for lack of a better word, energy that happens when two people are giving and receiving in a way where they are basing that on a sort of fairness, a sort of we're in this together, Uh, kind of basic understanding. And what is so great about about, uh, contextual therapy, which is the the therapy that Ivan Bozmeninaj created, is that it really takes that idea of reciprocity and fairness and puts it front and center in, in ways that therapies before it hadn't done. And um, and Catherine is, is she says you know Ivan didn't come up with this um, because how could he this is something that's been going on since the beginning of time however he is the one who brought it to the fore in our therapies and um, and I think especially with couples where this idea of there's sort of a slate or a ledger or um, an underlying way that we're all keeping track of what's fair and what's not fair. And we're keeping track of, you know, kind of when we've been slighted and ways that we need to be paid back or ways that we need to be taken care of because of that slight. That is all in this episode. I, I you know, I, I, this is an introduction to contextual therapy. There's a lot there. And um, it's obviously, I mean, it's a lifetime of Ivan Bosmeninaj's work. And then um, there's also a lifetime of Catherine's work. And I can't say enough good things about what it was like talking to Catherine. Um, she really pushed me to learn the theories, and um, and we actually did we actually did one interview that that didn't go well enough. So this is the second take, and um, and and she um, not only sort of has her own very rooted stance in what she refers to as um, realistic humanism. Um, but also she's just so well versed in her late husband's work. So first up, interview with Stan, where he talks about uh, social justice theory with impact. And then we got uh, Catherine Ducaminage talking about her work and contextual therapy. So here we go. Hi there, Stan. Hi there, Jason. Good to see you. And today we are going to be talking about the interview with Catherine Ducaminage about contextual therapy, which is the underlying element of pact of uh, of social justice and yes. um, and this these ideas of reciprocity and fairness. So can you just kind of set the stage here in terms of um, where uh, where just the role of fairness and justice and reciprocity within the pact model? Well, um, I think people might uh, be hearing what I've been talking about a lot 
And what I've been excited about even more so lately, that, uh, that social justice has been uh, a missing piece in all therapy. Um, it wasn't when Ivan Bozerman Yunaj was, uh, was bringing that you know, to play, to bear in systems thinking, right? Um, but it, it is uh, absolutely important uh, because we're dealing with the, the, the human primate, which is by nature, and I mean this by nature, um, unfair, unjust, insensitive, impulsive, self-centered, opportunistic, moody, right? All that stuff. And so we're, we're dealing with the nature state of human beings that is given to, uh, to be self-focused over, uh, over relationship focus. And so, uh, so this is really important when it comes to insecure attachment. It's really important when it comes to the environmental uh, stress to, uh, to develop a personality disorder, which is partly genetic, and, uh, but mostly environmental, because the environment has to be there to turn the gene on, right? So this sense of the subjective experience of, of being... Uh, treated in a manner that feels interpersonally unfair or unjust or insensitive, if unrepaired, um, uh, will repeat itself. And it will repeat itself by the very behavior the person exhibits in their interpersonal doings uh, in, in the future unless corrected, right? Mm -hmm. So I was treated unfairly. And uh, I feel very angry about that. Uh, I was used as a tool. I was exploited. Um, I was never right, always wrong. I had somebody, our parents said, never could be wrong. Uh, nothing was ever repaired. And I, I take that behavior and I start to do it as if I'm entitled to do the same thing. And then I, uh, and then I abuse somebody else's privilege. And then the beat goes on because nature, if nothing else, repeats itself, right? It's mm -hmm. not personal. It just is. Yeah, and, and that's what we see with insecure models. Yeah. Say that again. And that's what we see with insecure models. We see one-person systems that are that are pro-self and not pro-relationship when under stress. Uh huh. And that's what's so nice. That's what I really appreciated about the interview is just how much um, Ivan Bosmaninaj and and Catherine bring his his uh, his theories forward. Um, really focus on this idea of that we're all keeping track of fairness. That fairness yes. is something that we, uh, that in our minds, there's not a person, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, that Alzheimer's kind of can, can take some of these things away, but we are all keeping track of what's fair and unfair within relationship. Yes, it's the one thing that we don't forget. <laughs> uh, I, I, won't, I won't forget that I, I felt what you did was unfair. You'll forget because you weren't the recipient of it and therefore you're not gonna remember that. But I will keep count of these things, which is exactly the point. Um, and we should say that it's subjective. You may think you're being completely fair and uh, you may be right from your perspective. But if we're in a two-person system and I believe that you were unfair, then there's still a problem because uh, uh, I will behave uh, and remember, uh, according to uh, my memory, I will behave in a manner that will uh, make you pay for it. 
And mm-hmm. so therefore it should be in your interest that I feel it was unfair. Right? Yeah. That you felt it was uh, fair. And, you know, when, in consultation with you, you, you'll often say, I want to, I have to hear the sequence. Yes. Um, and I wonder is, and is, is one thing you're listening for is the fairness. Is that, is that, is that why you, one reason why you want to hear the, uh, the sequences so that you can hear the back and forth of where fairness or reciprocity is not happening? Well, if it were just hearing, then that would also be too limiting. I'm, hearing and seeing and feeling uh, somatically by my own gut reactions while I'm sitting close enough to be in resonance as an audience member. Right. And so, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm watching the, the somatic reactions uh, which includes listening um, uh, of the other person who's responding to what is said or done in that, in that instant, right? And then what happens next? What happens next? So the sequence is telling the story. The content isn't. The report by one person certainly doesn't. But the actual sequence, I can now see what's going on and hear what's going on just by, by seeing the back and forth, right? This happens and then that happens. And it could be unfairness. It could be insensitivity. It could be uh, an error of communication and, and strictly misunderstanding, which happens all the time. It could be two people talking about two different things, thinking they're talking about the same thing. Um, it could be two people going too fast, which means they're not listening, and the error-correcting areas of the brain aren't being given any time to do their job. And now we're getting more primitive, right? Shooting first, asking questions later. So, uh, so it can be all of the any of those things, not just a matter of unfairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm what I'm hoping to get at some of here today. I mean, you know. You talk about, and we talk about the uh, agreements between couples, how absolutely important they are, having a shared mythology. All of these seem to fall into the idea of, um, of a kind, it, uh, and social justice itself. I, the, the, what I'm hoping that people get from this interview is some ideas about how you go about creating an environment in which reciprocity begins to happen between people. That it's not just a matter of let's make agreements, let's make nice agreements and write them up and sign the paper. This is about a process of doing that. Absolutely. And, and can you talk a little bit about how you think about when you're watching that process, what you're watching for, what you're thinking about? Well, um, you said something important I just want to back up to, that because of this matter of, of, this, of the subjectivity of fairness and sensitivity, there has to be agreements between two adults um, that, first of all, that there is uh, that that there there is no singular idea of fairness and justice and sensitivity that these are subjective, and so partners then have to come together like all uh, like all partnerships uh, that's creating any civilization, big or small, they have to uh, define what is fair in our system what are the what are the rules of engagement in our system what are we expected to do that that is fully mutual collaborative and cooperative um, i don't get a pass here would be an example um, you're being unfair because i deserve uh, a special 
uh, consideration because I have a trauma history. Well, that we could say um, in a fully mutual collaborative system where both people have a duty to, uh, to provide um, uh, important things for each other like safety and security, that would be considered unfair because um, we're agreeing to do things um, regardless of how we feel. The very nature idea of this is that to be purpose-centered is the only safety we have um, if we agree on our purpose because feelings certainly don't uh, don't ensure anything except chaos because I'm going to feel a lot of different ways. And since my state is always changing, I may feel I don't like you, or I may feel that, uh, that you should take care of me and give me a pass because, you know, after all, I'm depressed. Therefore, I should uh, take advantage of the situation. You should give me, uh, give me that. Um, but I'm taking from you. It's not reciprocal. Um, that's because we don't have a shared purpose. That means, sure, I am not feeling well at this moment, but that doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. Maybe I'm depressed and I do it anyway because that's the purpose. It has to be done in order to stay to uh, in order to stay true to our agreement because you're going to have to do the very same thing, right? I'm going to expect you to do the very same thing, but maybe I can't. But that means that I don't just assume that you should just overlook it. Um, I might say, I am so sorry. I understand I'm being a drag right now. Um, uh, let me do this. And then I will do this for you. In other words, mm -hmm. I'm going to pay back into the system. I'm, I just don't assume that I get some kind of privilege because of my history or because of my current state of mind. That would be chaos and we couldn't govern that way. We couldn't get anything done that way. And that will be unfair. That's, mm -hmm. that's going to take them down for sure. This is, you're reminding me of this great quote from the episode where Catherine, who, by the way, was, she's a, she was so fun to interview. And no, no interviewee has, has worked me harder in terms of making sure that I knew something about the topic than Catherine did. Um, so, and it really paid off. I mean, I, I, it was wonderful to listen back and to hear how much I could actually follow her. So kudos to her. I mean, she, she was just so fun to talk to. Uh, so here's the quote. Accusing a spouse of not doing enough when in fact what you mean is that you have not received enough from a parent and now you expect your partner to give you what you didn't receive as a child. And this is unfair because developmentally, you can't ask your spouse to feed you a bottle. A man cannot ask his wife to breastfeed him in compensation for abandonment. What does that do? Question mark. Well, I'd go further and say, it's fair for you to breastfeed me so long as I will breastfeed you and that you want that, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's kind for kind. That's fine. Um, it's, it's, you know, again, these are particular agreements. I do it, you do it. It's only unfair if I get to do it and you don't, or I get to do it because I, I want that, need that, uh, and you should do it even though you don't say you need that or want that, right? That's unfair. So, uh, so all of these things have to be in, looked at um, uh, uh, with nuance uh, because on the face of it, um, it could sound like it goes back to childhood, but maybe that person's right. Maybe that person is feeling an overall inequity, in which case that would have to be addressed, right? Um, uh, so there are 
uh, issues where I feel you're not doing enough, Jason, and I need you to do more, where, um, where I'm tipping the scales uh, and expecting you to do more um, because I'm envious of your free time. I'm stuck at home with the kids and I feel like I've got all the work. Um, and, but also that could also be true. <laughs> and it could be that our, our, the old ways of bifurcating everything, you bring in the money and I do everything else is not exactly equitable. You know, it's not exactly right. And that doesn't mean that you have to do the dishes, but it means that you have to put more into the kitty because I'm feeling like you're not. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I am the partner who, uh, who is uh, being complained about, I better listen uh, because uh, that uh, is going to blow back on me or at least be curious enough to find out, um, uh, you know, what that is. Um, because people are very fast to say, well, look at all I do. And, and now mm -hmm. people are pulling out their dicks and comparing them, right? You know, or uh, pulling out their, their stories about how oppressed they are and how hard their lives are. Mm -hmm. uh, and that won't work either. But, you know, this, not everything that's happening where somebody calls foul refers back to the past. Everything has resonance with the past because we're memory animals. Everything we're doing is augmented by memory, which is driving our state mm -hmm. and vice versa. And to be fair there, Catherine's talking about destructive entitlements, which carry over from the past. Yes. So that's, that's specifically within that context. I want to get in that. We don't have that yes. much time, but I want to get to this. I agree idea. totally with that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to this idea. Catherine says there's this French word, which is a taste of the go back to it, which is, you know, if you have a brownie and then you go, Ooh, I want another taste of that brownie. Um, and now she I says that, What's that? Now I want a brownie. <laughs> yeah. So she says, she says that, that in order to sort of create a, um, a giving within the therapy, that you need to kind of help people to just get a taste of it, that it feels good to begin to be in this reciprocal process. Yes. And I feel like that's so much of our work as couples therapists is to convince might be the wrong word, but it does often feel like convince people to kind of begin to um, take care of each other in a different kind of way. Yes. We, we have to respect uh, memory as being a driving force of influence in terms of um, of what we see possible and what we see as impossible. I'm smart and I may know that reciprocity is the best thing, but in the moment, um, I don't believe it because I'm under threat because my memory tells me that your form of reciprocity is, is my experience of being taken advantage of. And so that's based on my real experience. I know this to be a fact. And it, it, so it takes, this is why, you know, the saying we're hurt by people we're, and we're healed by people. It's all in the interactions. It takes new interactions for me to, uh, to, be, to learn by experience that the old experience, the old relationship I had, which I had to have, I had no choice, it does, is not the only truth. And that there's a, there is another way of being that, uh, that, uh, that is not oppressive, where I do have agency, where I can exist you know, with another person in harmony because it's reciprocal and because we agree to it because we have to, otherwise we can't get along, see? Mm -hmm. um, and so 
So that takes the therapist um, constantly putting pressure, edging them, uh, getting them to do things they wouldn't do. So they have the experience. Wow, this is better. <laughs> I want to do this again because not only is, uh, is this easier, it's less stressful, but it's also rewarding. And let's add one more thing. One more purpose-centered. Um, there's something about that, doing the right thing, that serves the self. It is not to be a tool for another person, a doormat, a slave. When we, uh, when we abide by our own principles that are shared as well, and we stick to it and we do the right thing mostly, we feel better about ourselves. We feel pride. We feel like grownups. And we feel like we're, we're just, uh, we've just moved a, a step above the, you know, the base human tendencies, right? We're better than that now. We're wiser, smarter, more compassionate. And so I want to emphasize that this idea of being purpose-centered is self-enhancing. It's part of character building and discipline. And that's a hard thing to get people to know because uh, their interpretation from an insecure model is of giving up something, not getting something. I'm giving something up by falling on my sword for you rather than getting something for it. And we want people to experience that too. Yeah. And I just, I I thought I'll I'll let you kind of riff on this final quote by Ivan Buzmeninaj, who says that he was looking for a model that could define a pattern of interlocking motivations based on fitting reciprocity rather than identical sharing. So a model that could define a pattern of interlocking motivations based on fitting reciprocity rather than identical sharing. I think, I think that speaks to awareness of separateness as a given, as an existential given, and that, uh, that so much of, our, uh, of the human capacity to reach across uh, the bridge or reach across to another boat and imagine what the other person's reality is put ourselves in their shoes, which is, again, expanding into another person's mind. It's accepting difference. Um, And then from there, being curious and learning. Um, uh, And that means we're tolerant, but we're an intolerant species. And that's part of the, the wiring of the human primate. We have a lot to work against. And it's that part is not personality. That part is not the revolving ledger of unfairness and injustice. We also have to reckon with the human condition, uh, our basic wiring, um, which is, uh, you know, which is um, in nature good for the continuation of the species, but not really admirable when we think of social justice and higher, higher orders of wisdom and compassion, right? So we, we have more than just these, his, our own personal histories to uh, grapple with. We have the, the condition of being human to, uh, to grapple with. And that's part of growing up and becoming smarter and wiser. We can override our basest, um, you know, impulses um, to become uh, more than that. And unfortunately, there will always be a, 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 a small population of the planet that will ever achieve this at, mm. any, at, at any given time. That's why we start with the couple. While the world is nuts and animalistic uh, and unpredictable and unreliable, 
you too can build your world and, and, and have it be principled based on agreements um, and see this as your bubble that you always maintain safe and secure, fair, just, and sensitive that you can do. And that is a lot mm. <laughs> for your own well-being. Okay. Thank you. That's a great place to, to leave it for today, Stan. I okay. so appreciate your time and listening to these podcasts. And um, thank you, as usual. Thank you so much, Jason. Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand. Today we are talking to Catherine Ducamanage, MD. Catherine is a Swiss-trained child and family psychiatrist. She's an expert on contextual therapy. While she teaches the approach internationally on several continents, she also maintains an affiliation as a clinical associate professor with the Department of Couple and Family Therapy at Drexel University. The focus of her current work and of her writing is on the expansion of contextual therapy theory and its applications to varying clinical situations. She publishes in both English and French. She's the president of the Institute for Contextual Growth, and her late husband was Ivan Bozmeninaj, who died in 2007. He was one of the founding fo uh, founders of family therapy and the founder of contextual therapy. She has dedicated much of her life to expanding and spreading the ideas of contextual therapy through her writing and teaching, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Catherine to the show. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Jason. Thank you very, very much for this opportunity. And I really appreciate uh, that uh, we have this exchange and I hope it will be helpful to your listener. So please. Great. Well, yeah, and I've just, I just have really enjoyed um, this process. I've learned a lot about contextual therapy um, and, uh, and I'm pretty sure that people um, are really going to get a lot out of this. So let's just dive in here. Let's dive in with a, with a bare bones clinical example. Um, which we see a lot in couples therapy, which is two partners getting stuck in a downward spiral of demanding things, uh, demanding care from the other person. And can you talk about that from a contextual, ther contextual therapy standpoint? Right. So uh, bad news and good news. So meaning that we, we are made like this, whatever it is by uh, neurobiologically where we can find this place or not, we keep tabs on what we give and what we receive. Somewhere we register it as a, uh, as a position in the accounting that we have given more or the other one has given more. And we all expect some a level of fairness and reciprocity in our relationships. Now, how are we neurologically bound to do this? Uh, you know, um, species development of cooperation and loyalty might play a role also. Anyway, that we are, as a human spe species, we are uh, expecting loyalty from each other. Uh, we are relying on reciprocity and that becomes both a resource and a liability because the positive of reciprocity is I give, you give, you give, I give. Mm. The negative is you take, I take. And I, uh, you owe me, I owe you, you owe me, and who is owing what to whom. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, just as a sort of a joke, if there was a device like a magnet that could erase this sort of calculator uh, in our uh, brain, there will be bad news for, context, for family therapists and any kind of a couple therapist mostly, but also kind of family therapist, mm. that there will be nobody in our office saying, you know, I'll come here because he is really unfair to me. 
I come um, here because she's very unfair to me. And that's the subject of therapy. Mm -hmm. So we have this nature that we are keeping these tabs, this accounting. We expect fairness. We accept reciprocity. Uh, one is I do for you, you do for me. And the other one, I stand for you, you stand for me, which would be more the loyalty part. Hmm. I, I, I stand on your side when you're attacked, but you stand on my side when I'm attacked. Mm -hmm. It would be the loyalty part. And, and the, way you're, the way you're painting this, it, 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 it's intergenerational. This goes way back and it's, it links within the generations. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, if it's intergeneration species wife, yes, you go back to what says at least 200,000 years of Homo sapiens, probably. Uh -huh. That's the intergenerational one way. Uh, as far as intergeneration, not entirely, meaning that in any relationship, child and parents, parents and children, spouses, we all keep those tabs. The question is, what are the consequences for relationships? Mm. So in equals relationship, we expect fairness, we accept reciprocity, but again, it's not defined as objectively as, for instance, a work contract. You know, if you contract with an agency, you have to offer so many hours of services for so much money. Then if there is a conflict, you can go to a court that would establish who was wrong. And there's an objective definition of justice. Mm -hmm. In closed relationships, not the case, because the value, the value that we attribute to what we give, the value we attribute to what we receive is subjective. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, men know that they can offer a diamond ring for an engagement ring to their girlfriend. And she said, well, have you seen Kim Kardashian once? <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. so, so again, you know, it's a question of point of view. Uh -huh. so, and, and to, so just to, to finish that. So basically, one very important com component of that is that we all expect fairness, but the, 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 what is fair or not is subjective. That's the first point. Uh-huh. Okay? Uh-huh. So then the consequence is that if we estimate that we have been treated unfairly, then we expect um, you know, restitution, we accept repair, mm -hmm. uh, we expect uh, this account to be balanced back in the right place. Mm -hmm. So where it becomes different is that we can't expect the same between parent and child mm -hmm. because between, between pair, peers, one concept I want to introduce before we go to the intergenerational, mm -hmm. one concept. So what happened? So if an injustice or an unfairness is repaired, you know, you start to understand that yes, my boyfriend was really trying to be nice and he doesn't have the same money as Kim Kardashian's boyfriend, which I don't know who it is. I should look at the series. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to talk about it, you better know all about the Kardashians. <laughs> right. And I am uh, not in California. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, but you can come to a place to realize that the guy was really trying his best and accept that, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and then same thing, you can actually give something of very little value that is very important to somebody. Mm -hmm. Give you an example that I was a little niece that um, I wanted to buy a very small present. I bought some really cheap, funny earrings and it meant not much to me. It was just a gesture. And on the other end, she left for vacation without her earring box. And she was so happy she had these earrings to fill up her, the holes mm -hmm. in, the, in her ears, you know? Mm -hmm. So... 
it had nothing to do with the value. It had to do with just, it saved her from going bare ears, if I can say that. Uh -huh. So again, that's where the therapist comes because if you can agree about it, if you can discuss it, I understand what you meant, I understand what she meant, then we don't need therapy. The therapist comes when you get stuck in your viewpoint about this unfairness and, and come to the person that this is unfair and you should do this and you should do that. And other one, no, it was not fair. It was not unfair. And then comes the crisis and comes the request for help. If you want okay. Let me, let me see if I got some of this. So the, so the first piece is that fairness is just kind of built in. It's, it's built into us as a species. That, that just this idea of fairness is of giving and taking uh, is something that we all account for internally. The, the uh, second, can I just hold one, one yeah. second? It's not the notion of fairness is that we keep, we have a sort of internal sheet, accounting sheet, you know? Okay, we all that's, keep- in, that's, in, We all keep tabs, that's the main point. Okay. Then comes the expectation of reciprocity, fairness and reciprocity. Okay, so we all have this internal sheet that we keep and within that, and, and within that internal sense, we expect reciprocity from other people is right. that that's another piece and then the other piece is this sub that that what we give and receive is subjective to each person is that right no what we give and receive is objective to what we what we give and receive you know that's the earrings or the diamond ring uh -huh. what is the uh, not objective is how on what line we write it in the accounting book you know if it's a contract and you know, you know if you have cheated on the contract and didn't show up at work that's an objective inscription in the book. Got it. If you are happy about a small gift or if you are very disappointed about a good, a big gift, that's a subjective part of it, that, that our way of keeping the tabs is subjective. Our way of keeping the tabs is subjective. Right, the, uh, the, the value we attribute, as you can say in another word, the value that we attribute to what we give and receive is subjective. And you hear this all the time with, with couples where one will say, well, I did exactly what you said I should do last week. I, I showed up three times. Do, don't you remember when I showed up you know, early from work? And she says, you're always late. You're always late. And there's this different accounting within each of them. Correct. So that, that's the subjective that's exactly, part. Exactly. So you can really say in contextual therapy that the definition of justice is intersubjective. It comes from a dialogue. And the, mm. the, the, the real justice in couples or families would be if, you be if you are capable of accepting that the point of view of the other person on that situation is no less valid than yours. Mm -hmm. And that becomes reciprocal. I recognize that she, she, you know, I recognize that you have a perception that I'm always late because I'm often late, but it's not always. And then the, the other person could say, okay, now I can see your point. Mm -hmm. So once the, both parties are capable of realizing that the point of view of the other one is no less valid than my own point of view. We mm -hmm. do have a different point of view and neither of us has an invalid point of view. We can respect the other person's point of view. That's the true fairness. Mm -hmm. Because we give a similar chance to the other point of view and the other give a similar chance to our point of view. That uh -huh. becomes a sort of fairness. Right. Not that we settle the account, 
but we respect each of our point of views. Yeah. And this is easy to do. This is why I started with this example. This is easy to do when, you know, when you're not feeling stressed by the other person. But when you're stuck in a downward spiral of demanding care from the other person, it gets very hard to remember the idea that the other person's, the other person's viewpoint has value. Correct. So there we come to a different, uh, a slight, an, an important other notion in contextual therapy, which is called destructive entitlement. So when injustices can be repaired directly, you know, like, you know, I did something wrong. Okay, I was really late last time, but okay, now today I make sure, sure that I'm in good time and then we go to the movies together, whatever. And then we are straightening out the account, if you want to say that, right? Okay. And again, the therapist cannot be the one who judges the value of what's given and received. Why not? Because, you, you know, you can value the, the weight of a diamond ring or you can value the value of my earrings that I was giving. But the fact that this girl was so happy about this little present because it saved her from the shame of having her empty ears, you cannot judge it as a, as a therapist. You cannot imagine it until the person says it. I see. Or you say the person, you know, did, how many carats was the diamond? Please, you know. And the person <laughs> will say, well, I mean, you know, I deserve more. Uh -huh. you know? So that's where you can be the agent of the dialogue between these two people, but you cannot decide what is just and unjust from your own seat as a therapist because okay. of the subjective factors. And wait, and so what's a destructive entitlement then? So then just to finish that very quickly. So there are cases where it's objectively very unfair, you know, that as a normal human being, a normal man who knows the value of rings, you can say, look, I mean, this is insane for this woman to not appreciate the sacrifice of this guy who sacrificed all his salary to, to buy this. But still, it would not help in the relationship. You know, even if you are... Now, if it's an injustice that affects a child about uh, mistreatment, you know, that's a whole different story in terms of child protective services. You know, there are injustices to children that have developmental consequences that you better stop before it's too late. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same in child services than in couple therapy. Mm -hmm. You see? Now, as far as this incapacity to give credit to the other and insisting on an injustice, we come to another notion which is called destructive entitlement. So injustices can be repaired within time, within the relationship, and then accounts can be settled. But there are many circumstances where injustices have not been repaired. We have incurred an injustice. We go into life with an injustice, like have been abandoned by parents, uh, having a victim of a, um, even for instance, a disease that you know you grew up with that, uh, juvenile diabetes and your sibling didn't have it. These kind of circumstances, where you have a, a right, if you want to say a right to compensation, you have incurred an injustice that gives you a right to some redress, if you want to say that. But if you turn now this claim for redress towards somebody who has not done anything to you, including your spouse, with nothing to do with your past history, mm -hmm. then it becomes a new unfairness where you are not the unfair person. So for instance, accusing a spouse of not doing enough, when in fact what you mean is that you have not received enough from a parent and I expect this man or this woman to give you what you didn't receive as a child, 
mm. is unfair because even developmentally, you know, you can't ask your spouse to feed you bottle, you know, or a man can ask his wife to breastfeed him for compensation for abandonment. <laughs> I mean, what does it do? You know. Uh-huh. So the damage, the developmental damage, will be not repairable, but the claim can be persistent and create new damages in relationships. Now, in couples, it usually ends up as an escalation. And at some point, one of the spouses says, enough is enough, bye-bye. You know, I have done it. You know, I've tried every time. I'm trying to be in time every day. So, and I can tell you, the therapist, you know, that now I'm done. You know, I've done it. The problem, now we talk to the multi-generational part. Okay. Spouses can say goodbye, my friend, goodbye. You know, in work, you know, there is a sign in kitchens of uh, jobs, say your mother don't, does not live there, wash your dishes. Have you ever oh, seen right, that right. sign? Your mom doesn't work here, do your, you know, do your own damn dishes, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. something like that. So again, uh, it, what it means, in fact, why these signs are needed? Mm-hmm. It, they are needed because... People don't do the dishes hoping that their colleague will do it for all the time they wash the dishes for the little children, the little siblings. Uh-huh. So they parentify the staff in, to do the dishes for the mother. And that sort of ironic wisdom, popular wisdom, say, hey, I'm not your mother, wash your own dishes, you know. Uh-huh. So people in equal, uh, what do you say, symmetrical relationship, mm-hmm. colleagues, uh, spouses can put an end to the story. Children can't because they are dependent on the parents. They are attached to the parents in terms of attachment, you know, real attachment, psychological attachment, real dependence. You know, they cannot just walk away and I'm going to divorce my parents. I'm tired of them. doesn't exist. So they are much more vulnerable in terms of exploitation through destructive entitlement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where the multi-generational issue comes. The child is sort of called by the parents to replace something that the parent has been missing. And it can be just, uh, sometimes it can be just attention, uh, sort of unconditional attention. You know, uh, I have, you listen to me. I have listened to everybody in my life. Now you listen to me. Well, the child should be listened to, not the parent should be listened to. Mm -hmm. So it could be a, a sort of, use of a child as a confident it could be asking a child like in a case for instance adhd you know nobody watch me doing my homework do it you know mm-hmm. uh, so refusing to give and there the child has no other choice and it, it is sort of caught in that situation and then the danger is that since the child can say not cannot say goodbye my friend goodbye then it, the child accumulates a destructive entitlement and enters couple relationship, um, peer relationships, and parental relationship with this destructive entitlement. And again, in the next generation, the child is exploited, and then it goes from generation to generation. I see. So it, let's go back to the couple where one person is always late. Could that lateness be the result of a destructive entitlement? Uh, that the adult around them have to accommodate then you know that he that person does make the effort to accommodate to the to the partner yet partner should accommodate to this person so if my parents if my parents were just completely undependable mm-hmm. they were completely undependable for me 
And then I carry that. So, so I carry this, uh, I, I, I carry this destructive entitlement forward and I then never show up on time for, for my partner. Right. Now, why should I be dependable? Yeah, that is destructive, an expression of destructive entitlement. There's another element, which is the learning, you know, that somehow uh, there's the learning part that this is acceptable, that is done, uh, that, you know, that, uh, you know, in some societies, people never give advance warning for invitation. They call you at the last minute. And then you cannot, you have to miss the meeting because you were not prepared, you know, and you can get annoyed by that, you know. So there are, there are elements of our behaviors that are just repetitive from one generation to the other, you know. Mm. Uh, like, for instance, the way I count in French, which is a Swiss way of counting, immediately if I go to Paris, people know where I'm coming from, okay. Uh, so it's not loyalty, it's the way I was taught, you know. Uh, that's my way of counting. So, uh uh, then on the other end, it has nothing to do with loyalty, it's just learning. Now on the other end, if I refuse to adjust so that my children in Paris would learn the proper way in French, then it becomes a question of giving and receiving and a question of nobody has ever adjusted to my need when I grew up. Why should I change my habits for you to, to be adjusted to this new place? I see. I see. Okay. So and, there's a part that is learned and the part that is a destructive entitlement. And, and it seems like there's something about carrying it forward in a way that, um, that impacts other people negatively. Does that, does that? Right. So destructive entitlement in on itself is unfair. You know, the injustice occurred at some one place why should it be repaired by other people, including the kids with the diabetes, you know, who is really hurt that he has not been able to eat sweets, etc., and start to uh, beat up on his uh, peers because he's angry and then, or uh, becomes very irresponsible in his homework. Uh, and they say, look, you should do your homework like a grown up, you know, you're old enough to do your homework by yourself. And in some ways, it's a way of catching up on the unfairness of being uh, sick, you know. So that's uh, very important to be able to acknowledge the injustices. Because mm -hmm. as you start to acknowledge the injustice as a therapist, so as an, you know, when you intervene, then you are partial to the person's injustice that has occurred for real. But at the same time, you give with one hand and you are in a better position than to ask the person to also pay attention to the injustice that they are committing towards the other people. Okay, so, so uh, let me see if I got this. So the, the kid who has diabetes and then refuses to do his homework um, because, uh, let's just say, you know, he says, well, you know, I, didn't get, I don't get sugar, so why should I, why should I learn? Why should I, why should I study? Why should I practice? Uh, he, that would be his destructive entitlement. Well, it would be, for instance, expecting that other people would sit next to him uh, or that, uh, you know, or he becomes irresponsible in terms of other tasks, for instance, you know. So uh, then uh, the question is really also that he hurts himself, you know, because he hurts himself in not learning. So uh -huh. in the destructive entitlement, there are three parts. One is the injustice that occurred in the past that has not been repaired either because it's a it's a factual injustice like a diabetes like 
you know, having lost parents in an earthquake and being an orphan or something like that, or it is the parent's refusal to give because of their own destructive entitlement. So that's the injustice part. Then comes, on the other side, the effect of this injustice. And the destructive entitlement most likely is going to stay, you know. The entitlement is the valid part. You are entitled to compensation when you have incurred an injustice, you know. Uh, unless you can just say, okay, the world, the world has no rhyme, no reasons, and so whether it's fair or not fair, who cares, you know. But very people can approach injustices like this, you know. That's just the way it is and just forget it, you know. Mm -hmm. That would be nice, but it doesn't usually happen. Mm -hmm. Some people can return towards like invisible injustice, like, okay, I, I went through this, but I'm sure that God will hear me or it was my karma, I did bad things in the past life and that's what happened to me now, you know. So mm -hmm. people can look at, look for justice or reason for injustice outside of actual relationships. Mm -hmm. But even people who are religious and sort of try to explain injustices indirectly like this, you know, with who uh, faith, if you want to say that. They still have a tendency, it doesn't prevent them to still use other people for compensation. So then they commit an injustice, then the person who has been used in that case then has developed their own destructive entitlement that then they turn to the person who has mistreated them. And that's what you see in couples, that it spirals up because either both partners came from a world where they did incur injustices and have accumulated destructive entitlement that they turn against each other, mm -hmm. or they basically would be sort of free to give but at some point when you are so constantly sabotaged blamed accused at some point you do this develop your own destructive entitlement and then it fires back in the relationship mm -hmm. so most of the time when you meet a situation a clinical situation of the couple it when they end up in your in the office it means usually that both have started to act on the basis of destructive entitlement reciprocally. Mm -hmm. And and so within this, I imagine then that constructive entitlement would have something to do with giving giving to support the relationship or the other person. Does that sound uh, right? You are jumping ahead of the game, but I will help okay. you. <laughs> okay. We, okay. We, so we, we will be fine. We will be fine. Let okay. Me just go there. So. What are, the first question you ask, what's the difference between, if you want to say horizontal relationship or destructive entitlement is acting, acted among peers or in the spouse, uh, in a couple, uh -huh. which has a sort of a self-limited, limiting situation at some point, usually once say enough is enough, goodbye, my friend, goodbye, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, in children, they can't do that, so then it becomes multi-generational because mm -hmm. they cannot leave that, that demand, they are burdened with this demand, and then they accumulate the destructive entitlement. They may try to get compensation from spouses, but when it doesn't work, they turn to their own children. So that's the, you know, that's the uh, sort of, what you call it, um, um, intergenerational effect of yeah. destructive entitlement, the detrimental effect of destructive entitlement, which the main common, way of manifestation is parentification that to use the child as the parent as if he was the parent she was the parent who 
could give to you what your parents did not give you. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. an okay understanding? So yeah. just a very, very quick uh, remark about parentification understood this way. It's not that the child is usurpating powers, you know, like stealing the parental power to domineer to dominate the parents and, and start to be the one who decides about the TV program and give orders to the, to the other siblings in terms of a hierarchy of a reverse of power hierarchy. Right. In right. contextual therapy, parentification is understood as a reverse of giving and receiving. Mm-hmm. The child gives to the parent instead of the parent gives to the child. Okay. So that's very important. So now back to your question, how do you get out of there? And that's where comes this, what you just mentioned about constructive entitlement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically the idea is that we have two trends. One is to, if you want, let's say, um, claim our dues, if you want, mm-hmm. uh, even if it leads us to commit new unfairnesses, injustices, Mm-hmm. right because if you claim your dues towards somebody who has not caused the damage then it's unfair mm-hmm. correct and then on the other end there is another phenomenon that is actually very very much fashionable now uh, in terms of even neuro neuropsychological research and these kind of things mm-hmm. is what is the benefit of generosity? What is the benefit of giving? For instance, in Buddhism, there's a whole lot discussion now about, uh, about the benefit of compassion and, and can it be measured in uh, MRIs? There's some neurological research about that. Uh, so in fact, I think that most people would agree that giving brings something not just to the receiver, but also to the giver. Mm-hmm. I think okay. it's, uh, I don't know that, I think it's uh, a common experience that if you can make a, you feel different if you had made a nice gesture towards somebody than if you just sit in, uh, in your room watching TV. Mm-hmm. That uh, the gesture brings something to you and as it is a gesture, you know, like for instance, uh, I take the example of tips. In America, tips are basically calculated. You can even have a little card which tells you what tip you give for what bill. You know, mm-hmm. Then it's not a gesture. It's basically a, a crazy way of paying where you have to pay two people instead of one. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Whereas in Europe, uh, tip is in, there's no tip. The, pay, the payment goes to also to the uh, servers, you know, to the, the waiters. Uh-huh. So then if you leave something, it's really a gesture, you know, that really it means that this person deserves a little extra for something a little bit extra. Mm. And then if somebody had done something really extra for you, and then you, you take the, the change back to the last penny, you might not feel as good as if you... Uh, realize that this is somebody who needs a little bit of a gesture for what they did and you would have less money in your in your purse mm-hmm. uh, wallet but a little bit more money in your heart if you want to say that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is really what is talked about in the constructive entitlement that the gesture brings an indirect return to the giver and brings a direct return to the receiver. You know, like if you make a gesture to like this waitress uh, in France, that person gets realized that I cared enough to signal that I appreciated what she did and I gave her extra money. So that's benefit for her. 
but at the same time, it's a benefit for me that I've been able to acknowledge that, even if it's a loss of a little bit of change in my wallet. Mm-hmm. So at that moment, both are, both are gaining, if you want to say. So that's what we call a therapeutic moment in contextual therapy, that in fact, both the, give, the giver gains from giving, as far as constructive entitlement, and the receiver gains what is given, whatever mm-hmm. that is. And, and going back to our original example, would you say the couple stuck in a downward spiral, demanding care from the other person, that the, the healing moment is when they give, when, when, when they're able to, get, when, when constructive entitlements take place? Okay, so these are all sentences that are, if you're passive, not constructive entitlement takes place, not they are capable, when one person takes the risk of not sitting on the destructive entitlement, but risk a small gesture toward the other. Uh-huh. And that discovery becomes a source of encouragement to do different. Right. And the person who receives is a little bit treated better, which also gives an encouragement to do a little better. And my husband used a very strange word in English, uh, used the word lured into giving. Now, that's a very strange word. Lured, L-U-R-E-D. Yeah, uh, and it's a strange, it's, it's, it's not exactly expected. This is luring, is like agitating, you know, like trying to get somebody someplace by tricks in some ways. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly what we are saying, but in some ways the therapist should be skillful enough to ask a gesture that is small enough to be tempting. Mm. Not coming back home every day at the same time right away and not messing up, but in this occasion of that famous that Saturday where it's a special occasion, uh, how would it be if on this special occasion, we're not talking every day, every week, uh, mm. in that special occasion, could it be feasible maybe to, to take one train earlier? Mm-hmm. How would it be? Mm-hmm. And the person might bitch a little bit about it, might say, oh, blah, blah. But if somehow as a therapist, you're skillful enough to make this gesture small enough to be possible, mm-hmm. that's the luring part. Because if you want to just redress the whole thing and everybody should occur, uh, accrued, uh, constructive entitlement, blah, blah, with big sentences, you're not going anywhere. So you have to have the skill as a therapist to sense is there a small gesture that is palatable, if you want to say that? Mm-hmm. And that gives the taste to do it again. Got it. In, in French, and I never found the word in English, when we have cookies, you know, like say you have brownies, okay? Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, I only take one for sure. Okay, fine. And then, well, you have eaten the first one and you sort of go back to the box and you say, well, I think I can eat the second one. <laughs> so you have, in French, we say a taste of go back to it. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's the taste that you have to give to your client. Uh-huh. That it's not that bad to give, that it's actually a little taste that might be a little bit more you can also try. Great. From here, do you think we should go into multi-directed partiality or the different dimensions, which, or, or loyalty. 
Where, where okay. should we go next? <laughs> okay, uh, loyalty was relevant, I think, to our discussion about parentification and destructive entitlement. Okay. And maybe that's the time to pick it up. Okay. So loyalty by Eng in the definition of English or any languages is the sort of preferential choice for one person out of commitment to one person to be on the side of this person versus the other people. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in feudal times, you know, the, the Lord would say, I feed you, uh, but if somebody attacks me, you take the weapon for me, with me against the other person. Okay. So, you know, it's a sort of a funny, funny way, if I can say that, that loyalty can cause problems from that point of view, that in, we say the, the friends of my friends are my friends, right? That's what you say it in English. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in loyalty, the enemies of my friends are my enemies. You may attack people out of loyalty to your friends who have not done anything to you, which is okay. actually the, the what's say, loyalty treaties between countries, you know, where, you know, that's how World War One and the World War One started, you know, this old stupid loyalty agreement that made that if you hit on the head of my neighbor or my friends and I'm going to hit on your head. Right. Okay. You know? So loyalty is a positive that it creates solidarity, it creates commitment to help each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a certain that's a, a cement of, of relationships that uh, also in terms of families, it defines sort of family boundaries, that the people who are linked to the same commitment as opposed to anybody else in the society, mm -hmm. right? Or even in a couple, you know, there's loyalty between two partners, whether it's faithfulness, loyalty, that's, a, you know, semantic, but it creates a unit. This is the unit and the rest of the people are not part of this unit. So loyalty in that sense has uh, as a base of, preferential choices right mm -hmm. you follow that yeah so so basically I, I i loyalty tells me that i should prefer you to other people and i should be on your side Preferably, i should be on your side i, I should, be, should on your be, side. be on your side right yes. exactly rather than on the side of other people who might also want my side so mm -hmm. one has to remember also that there is no notion of loyalty without the notion of loyalty conflict it's part and parcel. Okay. So you have because to have the conflict. Unless, if you no, choose, no, no. if you choose, then you are choosing not to choose somebody else. Is that? Exactly. That's okay. the point. That's mm -hmm. exactly very well done. Very well okay. said. So basically, uh, then uh, comes the question of the child. So there's a, a loyalty based on really obligation to respond to what you have received. Uh, which is, you know, like you've been taken care of by your parents and you owe them more to visit them in a nursing home than somebody who just sold you the paper on the street, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, now, in terms of children, tends to be loyal to their parents out of many different factors because loyalty is one dimension in sort of what we call relational ethics, which is based on an obligation to return, if you want, what you have received, an obligation of fairness. But there are other factors of loyalties that uh, I won't go into detail here, but there are factors linked to attachment, for instance, preferential attachment, mm -hmm. also gives the direction of loyalty, which is not based on obligations. Uh, you can extort loyalty. I mean, there's a mafia style. You mm -hmm. pay your due, I put the bomb in your pizza place, you know. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. you know, you can have loyalty at the gunpoint, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you vote for me or else I put a bomb in your shop, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are different dimensions of loyalty, but in contextual therapy, the most important is this loyalty based on reciprocity, if you mm. want to say that, right? Okay. We don't encourage uh, mafia-style loyalty. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that. You are loyal or I shoot you. You know, that's yeah. not recommended in contextual therapy. Uh-huh. So, uh, but, you know, the, the, the loyalty to a sect, for instance, the control of loyalty in sects is very known, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the, the making sure that the people don't leave by cutting communication with others. So we secure the people's loyalty by cutting off their chance to establish other relationships. Wait, in sect like S-E-C-T? Yeah, sect, religious sects. Religious sects. Oh, sect. You know, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so in, I lost you a little bit there. Say that again. I, I, that was confusing. So what I'm saying, I was talking about the mafia style, you know, you're mm-hmm. loyal or I shoot you, mm-hmm. or I maintain your loyalty by cutting you off from everybody else, mm. which would be the way that uh, in sects, the leaders of sects guarantee the, the loyalty of the followers to, to the leader by sabotaging any of the, preventing them to establish other contacts. Got it. Uh-huh. Right? Yep. So as I said, there are many components of loyalty, but the main component here is really that sort of decency of repaying your obligations mm-hmm. right, to the people who have helped you. Okay, right? great. Okay. Now, as far as children, the problem with children, that loyalty to their parents is, even some people have challenged, can you talk about loyalty as we understand it for small children, because they are attached to the parents, they are dependent on the parents. But we also know that children take the side of the parent in ways that are quite unexpected. You know, for instance, uh, the child who, um, you know, just saw a parent, I mean, in a dramatic situation, uh, of children uh, who see a parent arrested for a good reason, you know, like in domestic violence, for instance, and the father is taken away after having mm-hmm. created a very bad situation. And the child coming between them, him and the police say, don't take away my daddy. You know, mm-hmm. that, that somehow it is also that children take the side of parents when they are attacked by society or when they are, uh, you know, criticized by society. So the child who is, you know, the child cannot say no to parentification for all the reasons we have already explained, Mm -hmm. but also out of loyalty. And for instance, if you have a therapist who tries to convince a child, you should not listen to your mom. When she asks you this question, you should not answer. You should just say, mom, that's not my, I'm not going to answer them. You know, therapists try to de-parentify children Mm -hmm. by encouraging them to refuse to respond to the parents' needs, if you want to say that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in that case, it puts the child in a difficult place because it puts the child in a loyalty conflict that they want to do something for their parents more so than for other people. And then they may be attached to the therapist who asks them to be against the parents. Mm-hmm. So it's very important when you have this situation to realize that this, there's a loyalty component to the child's attitude Mm-hmm. And the way to help a child or deparentify a child is to alleviate the burden by listening to the child. For instance, if you have a child with an alcoholic parent and the child is hiding the bottles, 
mm-hmm. the child, the parents not to drink, which is quite known. You know, even young children do that. You are not going to say the therapist, this is not of your business to hide the bottles. You should stop doing that, mm-hmm. which is correct in one way. Mm-hmm. You should, I, you know, it's not illogical to say that. But then you put the child in a loyalty conflict that they want to do something for their father. They really care about the father. And then the therapist tells them not to do it. And they are loyal to the therapist because they are also attached to the therapist. The, the correct way would be to say to the child, when you're so worried about your daddy to drink in the morning before going to work or something, who is there who you could ask for help? Is there anybody? Is there anybody who has heard your worry and maybe help your mom not to go shopping for this alcohol? You know, Is there anybody in the family that could talk to your dad that you are very worried about him? Or should I talk to your dad about you being really worried? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it means that you don't sabotage the loyalty of the child toward the parent. You de-parentify the child by really hearing the child's worries. Yeah, it's tricky. It's, it's, yeah, and, I see that. Yeah. And in, in structural therapy, that will be counted as super parentification as a therapist. But you see the difference. If I really care to ask the child to really explain me what the child worried about, Mm-hmm. what the child has already tried, what the child would like to try, what the child... Then I'm an adult listening to the concern of the child. So I'm actually uh, taking care of this child by listening to his concern. If I say, look, you shouldn't worry about it, it's none of your job, I abandon mm-hmm. the child with the worries. So it's the opposite of de-parentifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see this. Tell me if this works. I, I see this a lot with couples where... Um, let's say, let's say the couple, the, uh, let's say the wife in the couple has friends from high school that she goes out and she just gets, you know, she get and and she does too many drugs with them, let's say. Mm Um, and, and she feels this and, and they grew up together. She feels this intense loyalty to them. And then she comes back to her husband and her husband says, Hey, you know, um, I don't, I, you're doing these destructive things. I really don't like it when you do this. And she feels caught in the loyalty between these people who she grew up with, who she feels very, very strong attachment to um, through her adolescence and her husband and the, and the life that they're trying to live together where they're, where they're not as, where they're not doing as many drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that, how, does uh, that, how would that fit in? Well, it's interesting because it would be the same. It, it would be maybe more helpful to say, look, is there any other way that you could be a good friend to these people rather than just doing drugs with them? Is there any other thing that is important to these friends rather than being blasted with them mm-hmm. that you could do? Like, for instance, can you uh, even, you know, if they have already children, instead of just going out, can you offer at least to maybe help the children or something like this, you know, to be a loyal friend via other ways of just doing the same? Mm that would be trying to find a positive avenue of loyalty rather than a destructive avenue, positive expression of loyalty rather than destructive expression of loyalty. Mm -hmm. But the difference is still that the leverage of a husband calling for uh, more attention or something is not the same as a child, you know. Got that. Uh, If you, you know, like I had a case where um, the man was a really very chronic alcoholic, if you want to say that, but not, um, 
signaled the, the general doctor was not too worried. The, the liver function was okay. Uh, he was uh, keeping his job. He was not beating his wife, you know. So the general doctor was not too worried and the child was not going doing well at school. And I discovered that the child was really worried about his father having car accidents. So the father was saying, no, I mean, your alcoholism has nothing to do with me. I mean, I, my alcoholism doesn't bother. I can never beat up my children. I'm there for the homework. But I said, but your, your son has something to say to you. And the level of uh, the sadness of this child fearing that this father could die in a car accident mm. was completely different from the wife basically telling the same. Mm. There's, a, there's a different leverage. Uh-huh. To my, in, in my experience, the, 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 because the parent-child relationship still have, is a heavier, how do you say, heavier than a spouse relationship mm-hmm. in that sense. What, what so, is, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm not forgetting your question about multi-directed partiality. So I don't well, that's know where, where I was going to... next too. Yeah, I was, <laughs> okay. I, I, I was curious about that. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, so tell, uh, can you talk a little bit about multi-directed partiality, partiality. within contextual therapy? Yeah. Correct. So the question is that in individual therapy, it's quite simple. If somebody picks up the phone, say, hey, I have this and this problem. Uh, are you a specialist of this and this, uh, you know, like, I know, uh, spider phobia. Do you treat spider phobia? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. You have a contact and you say, yes, I do CBT. I do desensitization treatment and we have a deal. Okay. And this treatment between you and this client has not affected anybody and you just help this person. Okay. Now, on the other end, uh, you have somebody who has uh, um, school, um, agoraphobia, a lady with agoraphobia. And then you start to realize that when this person asks for an appointment and start to talk, that it does affect the children, that basically the children perceive that she doesn't want to go out and say, oh, we don't need to go and play outside, or uh, we don't need to, to go to the movies, uh, we are fine with the TV home, you know. And you realize that then developmentally they lose chances because this woman cannot offer them all the range of experiences that they should be offered to by a parent who has not this mm-hmm. kind of difficulties. Mm-hmm. So then... Uh, you have then to bring the side of the child too. It's not just becoming the treatment of an agoraphobia. To what extent can she be motivated then in terms of this constructive entitlement, if you want to say that, in trying working, not just for her, but trying to find accommodation for the children. Mm. You know, you start to bring the children in the picture. Now, again, whether you take them in the dialogue, like I did with this young, young guy who was like, he was like 11, this kid would, you know, worries. And I, I give, him a, uh, uh, give him a chance to speak up. I, I support him to speak up, which is hard for the father. You know, it would be easier for me just to see the father in my office and tell him not to, not to drink, you know. There I have to take a side of bringing the child's rights towards this man, you know, insistence that drinking is not damaging anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? So then it becomes the partiality to the father who believes that he is doing the best. But I'm also partial to him in a very strange way, which is not, it is also to give him a chance to give to his child. Mm-hmm. Not to say, oh, my child should just be adjusting to it because basically it's his illusion that I could have a car accident because, in fact, 
the boat I'm driving is so short I couldn't have and I go home you know I drink after I go home and not before I go home blah 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 that would be one way of saying look uh, I mean the, my child claim is kind of irrelevant and then I don't want to change you know but I can be also partial to this man does he gain something from listening to his child's worries hmm. Mm-hmm. which is giving him a chance to give to his child, right? Mm-hmm. And ah. then the interesting part to use even in the same case, it's, I think it works. The interesting part was the wife was not really complaining about the drinking, you know, as long as, as there was money was coming every month, he had not had an accident, he had not his license revoked, uh, basically he was snoring his alcohol out on the sofa every night. And as he sort of revived to really, I mean, he took it very seriously, John Alcoholic Anonymous. And then came another problem that it revived his sexuality, that he was not just snoring on the sofa, but lucid on the marital bed. Mm-hmm. And suddenly uh, that becomes, that created another problem with the wife, which faced her with her ambivalence towards sexuality and their old sexual problems. Mm. So then it became another subject of partiality. So Hannah, uh, I have to be partial to, he was very discouraged. He said, now that I'm, my kid is better in school, but now my wife is, uh, uh, his wife was really, and I won't, I won't say, you know, putting a bottle in front of his nose, but she was definitely sabotaging his AA meetings and stuff like that. Interesting. Uh-huh. So that's a systemic part, if you want to say, and uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, which we know in couples, and then also then the partiality could be extended to him as trying versus her being scared and what can be done for her to regain confidence about her own sexuality, which needed some other interventions. Mm-hmm. So that would be the partiality not to her as being re-exposed to actually uh, some bad sexual experience I and mean, sort of traumatic stuff that she was in a way avoiding by having this alcoholic husband. Huh. That's a great example. It's a really good example. Um, and it really illustrates how if you, if, you move one, if you move one piece, then another piece often becomes exposed. Correct. Which is a systemic knowledge, a if sy- you want to say. A systemic knowledge um what well i think this would be a good place then to talk about what is unique about contextual therapy within this giving and taking that's different from the systemic part what, or giving and receiving giving, giving and receiving and, giving it's and receiving. interesting Sorry. uh the title of the main book on contextual therapy is there, between give and take mm-hmm. it could also be between giving and receiving or okay. between yeah it, it's a uh, okay we take we receive we give okay we all do that, right? Right, right. <laughs> so right. now, as far as now, I think it's sort of, is that okay in terms of the different dimensions? I think. Yes, that's where we're headed. Subject. Yeah. So then maybe I can just make a slight excursion into my late husband's sort of own journey, if you want to say that. Mm-hmm. That he was, by training, he was uh, sort of very um, alert to issues of justice and injustices as, as a person already very young. And he had, for instance, an experience where he felt that a man with schizophrenia was very mistreated by villagers. Mm-hmm. When he was a teenager, he was spending his vacations, uh, summer vacation in a small village in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And the villagers were very cruel to a man who was obviously, uh, he was delusional, he was hallucinating. And that touched my husband as something very sad, very unfair, and kind of 
rattled him to the place that he got interested in this kind of situation and eventually decided he wanted to do not just medicine but psychiatry. So he studied psychiatry in the times, you know, talking, uh, you know, he graduated, he finished his in the late 40s, you know, so he, he actually became a political refugee in 48 mm. and arrived in America from a refugee camp in Austria in 1950. So at those, those days, there were not much options to help people with schizophrenia. There was some like lithium, there was some um, like, chloral hydrate, very, very basic medications, not much. And he got interested in studying and actually did train as a biochemist, chemist, biochemist to do biochemistry research on the um, uh, markers of schizophrenia and the whole biology of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. the, talking about the late 50s, and at that time, things were not very promising. Even now, you know, with all the equipment we have, uh for instance we just discovered that auditory hallucination in schizophrenia do occur in the auditory centers of our brain which mm. is very surprising and so what's the difference between a person hearing voices or me having a tinnitus and i know that's nobody talking into my ear it's a tinnitus wow so you know and what uh -huh. is the how can we explain the difference that I'm not convinced that somebody's shooting noises in my ears and the other person mm -hmm. is convinced that somebody's talking to him. We don't mm -hmm. know. Even mm -hmm. now, I'm talking 2020 coming up, you know. Mm -hmm. So eventually he stopped doing this kind of research feeling that we were way, way, it was way, way back to, I mean, too far from being able to produce anything, if you want to say that. There was not, not, not of the tools to produce anything valid. Mm -hmm. And he turned to therapy and that's when he, was actually named as a research director uh, of, uh, at the Philadelphia um, uh, Institute, Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, mm -hmm. EPPI. And uh, he was a director of research, both for biochemistry and for clinical. Oh, wow. Which is, people would say, are you a chemist? Are you a biochemist? Are you a psychiatrist? I'm both. No, that's possible. Tell, tell us, really, tell us, tell us. Mm. So eventually he left the biochemistry piece to colleagues and went back into really research or clinical research and with patients with schizophrenia. And that's when he discovered that people, even delusion, a lot of delusion hallucinations, were able to make sense when it came to uh, fairness, justice, loyalty. So mm. that somehow that language that we discussed before about what we call relational ethics, was very prominent in people who otherwise had the very decreased reality testing in terms mm. of hearing voices and stuff like that. And that fascinated him that somehow this was present and that what people said in real relationships with the family visiting had much more meaning than what they were able to say in, co in a group therapy. You know, when they do a group analysis, you know, where they analyze the transference of a patient towards the nurse, towards the doctor, this right. kind of thing. That to, the, to him, it was not leading much anywhere with schizophrenic patients, but that they were saying truth when it came to talking with the family members. And that encouraged him to invite the families. Ah. And that's really what the turning point was to sort of instead of just hearing that passing by in the waiting room that, oh my God, this makes sense. I mean, I never heard this guy talking that much sense as on the sofa of the waiting room with the parents. Then if that's the case, then do a session with these people. 
So at the beginning, there was not such a thing as family therapy. They were just observing and with observation, it was a very dedicated observer. I mean, taping, one-way mirror, uh, notes, discussing, you know, with uh, colleagues observing, colleagues in the session, mm. discussing what happened. They did a lot, a lot of research on that basis until they got to the place where they realized that, in fact, it came down to a model with five dimensions, uh, which means one dimension was the biological dimension that he didn't abandon because some other therapists, once they moved to family therapy, they really abandoned the dimension of facts, you know. And, you know, when you talk about Jay Haley mentioning that psychosis is just an effect of family relationships, my husband would not agree with that, saying, look, not everybody gets schizophrenic from relationships with the family. Mm. There is something biological that you cannot deny. Mm -hmm. exactly what it is how it works as a separate subject but it is something mm -hmm. so he wanted to leave a place for biology in his model mm -hmm. he wanted to leave also a place he didn't want to abandon all what has been acquired in uh, what you say depth psychology psychoanalysis mm -hmm. uh, piaget development uh, stages mm -hmm. cognitive therapy he felt that all of this was relevant, that as human beings, we have emotion, we have an unconscious, uh, we have unconscious level of functioning, we have conscious level of functioning, we have attachment styles, and so that all this that has been the contribution of psychology and, and at large, you know, whatever attachment theory, Piaget theories, um, psychoanalytical theories should be kept because they are determinants of our behaviors. Mm -hmm. So also there, uh, many family therapists were poo-pooing that in a way saying, look, what counts really is uh, the whole not being the sum of the part. And if the whole is not the sum of the part, why bothering about the parts? Mm -hmm. You bother only about the whole, which Let's is, uh, the whole. Uh -huh. you know, and that's a problem because then you ignore the determinant that are inherent to the parts, mm -hmm. which is the biology, the psychology. Got it. So then the transactions were the bread and butter of family therapists, you know, the pioneers of family therapists to observe that. What I described in that case, you know, that you treat something and boom, then something else occurs, you know, like you are treating the relation, you know, you're doing something that is relevant to the relation between the child and the, the father. And as something changes, then it can start to affect the, the wife and that it could even lead to a relapse of the husband. Mm -hmm. So this was really the discovery of classical family therapies, the systemic elements of family dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so my husband totally participated to this as he observed families that became obvious, you know, like he would have encountered that family and realized, yes, once you change something in the man, it reactivates something in the woman and you better take care of everything rather than just one thing. Mm -hmm. But then he brought in this, what we call this relational ethics that, it would be ridiculous to say that he discovered it because, as I say, I mean, how old should be you know, a child to say, oh, this is not fair. My brother got more than I did. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a contextual therapist to invent that, right? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so uh -huh. so uh, the, the question which is surprising to me is that this is what is in every human being. That is not fair. I gave more than I received. You never listened to me. I always listen to you. I mean, you hear this all the time, but therapists have not sort of grabbed that dimension as, as part of the attention. You know, like 
there's no, I don't think you can produce one therapist on this planet that has never heard the sentence, what he did to me was not fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, tell me one therapist that has never heard this. I cannot believe it. No, no parent has never heard it. No human being has never heard it. Right. Right. The question is, do you give yourself the tools to address it? Mm -hmm. And you can hear that sentence, you know, like you are a psychoanalyst and you hear uh, the, guy, the person is laying on the sofa and says, oh, come in last night. I did this and this for my husband and he didn't respond. It's really unfair. And you say, mm -hmm. all right. You don't even say, all right, say, mm -hmm, and wait for the next sentence, you know? Mm -hmm. Or you are a couple therapist who handles this, a contextual therapist who takes this, like take the bull by the horn, if you want to say that. So the question is not that he invented relational ethics, but he gave a prominent pla place in this therapy to address the issues coming from that dimension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very different from inventing it, if you want to say. He never invented anything, you know. But he did decide that this was a very important factor in relationship that needed uh, to be addressed with special strategies, mm -hmm. including that multi-directed partiality that we mentioned. Um, and let's just give a short, a short version of the fifth dimension, because I don't think okay. we're, we have time to really get into that today. But, but just, just, so, just so we get, we get all five. Yes, oh sure. And I would not miss it. Don't worry about it. I okay. Hold it anyway. So basically, uh, and there I may uh, just because I to summarize it better, I may just look at this here. So basically, what we mean by that it is that uh, you had asked actually a question about autonomy. Actually, mm -hmm. that's how you. Oh, right, right, right. We we sort of missed it, you know. So uh, you had asked about the the question about autonomy and what is the difference? What is autonomy? in uh, contextual therapy uh -huh. and somehow uh, contextual therapist as everybody else understand autonomy as you know regular uh, independent functioning you can have your own apartment you can have your own job you can make your own choices and of course any therapy that promotes this kind of autonomy is totally you know that's desirable you know that people mm -hmm. can you know get to the maximum level of autonomy they have for their age, you know, developmental stage or condition, you know, like uh, in my work with people with severe mental health disorders like schizophrenia, what is the maximum autonomy that a person with severe uh, schizophrenia has in terms of, for instance, finding a job mm -hmm. that can be held despite the, the delusions and you know, finding some ways for people to, to be autonomous. Uh, in that sense, you know, rather than being stuck in the hospital for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so that part is totally understandable. Yep. Now, on the other end, uh, the question is, what is the definition of autonomy as far as the self is concerned? And that's where contextual therapy propose that autonomy is paradoxical, that somehow there is no self without a non-self to sort of establish it. You know, that it mm -hmm. has to be established by a contrast. And I would take, uh, for instance, the example of the movie uh, um, Castaway. Mm -hmm. you know? I think it's a movie that quite a few people know yep. about this uh, shipwreck. is an, an island. It has a, is that a football, right? Uh, volleyball. Volleyball. So I'm yeah. not very good. I'm <laughs> not in the white, games. the white one with yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he uh, he um, draws a face on it and dialogue with his face. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So in some ways, that dialogue with the face thrown on this balloon is not a self-other relationship because the balloon is a balloon. There would be no relational ethic. The balloon is saying, oh, you have talked to me so much, now I want to talk to you. You know, that mm -hmm. would not work very well uh -huh. in terms of fairness. So there is no dimension four, but there is a dimension five, which is that uh, this, uh, so that, to the dimension five that he used one, two, three, which was the biopsychosocial model, added four because it was new, which is relational ethics. Uh -huh. And then came that fifth dimension that I'm talking now very briefly, which is that somehow uh, in our relationship, we all need a contraposition, a, count, a counterpart to establish the continuity of the self. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the question is, for instance, this, uh, this guy, when he's rescued, then he could reestablish a dialogue with a spouse or with uh, his peers at work. But in, in either cases, he needs his counterpart. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, we call this an ontic dependence because it's of inner, this dependence is inherent to the definition of the self. Mm -hmm. The self is established via a relationship. And so the question, which is actually, so that's a, a specific dimension of relationships, which is not to do with attachment, with desire, sexual needs, uh, hierarchy of power, is the need of the presence of the other to secure the continuity of the self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For instance, we know that clinically, we know that people who lose a, a pet, for instance, can collapse in a way that is disproportionate to the loss of a dog because this dog or this cat serves as a prop to the self, to the continuity of the self. Like mm -hmm. this guy, when the balloon fell into the water, suddenly it's happened that it was almost losing the continuity of the self and tried to mm -hmm. rescue this balloon, this, uh, sorry, this ball, well, uh -huh. uh, as much as he would have rescued a child, you know, because he needed that ball to be securing the continuity of the self. Yeah. So in cup, so this this is a that's called the fifth dimension of relationship. That is another dimension that's separate from the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. But in couple therapy, I think one important thing is to remember that you have some couples where the things are really bad between them, and you will see that how can they they stay together, even in sometimes some abusive relationships. And you can have all sorts of theory of why people stay in, uh, in an abusive relationship. One element that is sometimes missed is that despite the bad quality of the relationship, that presence is needed for the, sec for the continuity of the self. Mm -hmm. So before you talk about separation, etc., you also need to secure, to understand who else would take this place in that person's life. Very interesting. And uh. therapists in general, we all every therapy operates in this dimension. There's not one therapy with, because every therapeutic encounter with a therapist is a self non-self dialogue. So uh -huh. it's not even the content, but the fact that you are meeting a non-self. And that's a problem, for instance, I think with internet therapy, I'm not talking Skype, you know, like now we talk on, uh, on Zoom, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and we see each other and then we are in a relationship in that sense, even, you know, we have not met personally, but at the same place, just to answer questionnaire on the internet would not bring that side. Mm -hmm. Would be a very different kind of therapy than a meeting. So the meeting element of any therapy is therapeutic in and of itself. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh.
because it gives that experience of of the I thou is that is it I I, I... okay so you said the I thou which is fine so the, what is interesting if you talk about the balloon and the tomagen is ball okay mm -hmm. but whatever ball <laughs> I am still not uh -huh. sure we'll just call it a ball uh -huh. <laughs> okay yes okay. thank you uh, so uh, then. Uh, there's no eyes out dialogue with that blue, with that ball, right? Uh huh. Uh, with a pet, uh, not really. Uh, on the other end, you can also have a, a user used dialogue, like an I eat dialogue, where you are, um, you know, you have a driver and you this, you don't care who this, this driver is and just use your driver like an Uber driver. Mm -hmm. But the Uber driver is still different than having a self-piloting car. Mm -hmm. You still have a, a person to whom you give orders or you pay. It's not an eyes out, it's not an encounter, but it's still a person contrasted with you, with not mm -hmm. just you alone in a self-driving car. Uh -huh. Or you can have a relationship which is really uh, a dialogue where it's a reciprocal dialogue where you really meet the other as a person than in an eyes-thou dialogue. But in the eyes-thou dialogue, you have also the thou-I dialogue because this always we have to understand that these things are reciprocal when it comes yeah. to heal other, not the bone. Great. And I think this would be a good, uh, let's start wrapping up, but I think this would be a good time to put in this idea that couples have a shared script or a shared mythology about the um, about their agreements and about the relationship itself. Uh, we are in a relationship together, um, a, a committed, deeply dependent relationship. And how that becomes important for how, why the importance of that within a, within a couple? Can we can we kind of link that back? Uh, that two things maybe. Then of course. If you don't share those same things, then you are not a couple, you know. They, they can be pair partners like traveling partners, for instance, uh, who are planning to do a trip together because it's easier to travel as a twosome than alone. It's safer, mm -hmm. but they have no uh, view of themselves as a couple. They have no myth uh, of what they imagine would this be the, how they, what they would reach as a couple and and they don't share, um, you know, they don't put their goals in common. They, they just, you know, finish the trip goodbye, you know. Mm -hmm. So, the, of course, uh, creating this sort of common goals, common myths, is part and parcel of creating a couple. You know, if you mm -hmm. don't do it, you don't, you're not a couple. You might be traveling partners, you might be work partners, but you're not a couple. Mm -hmm. basically the question which is interesting from the point of view of contextual therapy is that this creation of a unit is not just for the sake of the couple but is also a very big importance for children because you can you know if you have a child with some person and you have not built that sort of common couple you know whether it's married with a ring or absolutely not or same-sex couple or mm -hmm. child is adopted or whatever whatever that's irrelevant to the fact that if you don't have a project as a couple as parents and if you cannot create a, a sort of a common script if you want to say that then it it's falls on the child to create a, the script for his existence and that's a horrible parentification of the child. So 
just a simple example, I was, I scolded, I have an acquaintance, I mean, sort of friend, but was very badly scolded preventively because it was a very unusual coupling between a person who was a deeply committed Christian, I mean, I mean, totally talking uh, deeply committed with a extremely committed Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, you know, when they, they were expecting to have a child, and I asked them, what would be the child's religion? Is my child going to be baptized, etc.? And they say, oh, he will choose, you know, when he's bigger. I say, well, then I slap you on the bottom, both of you. You work now on, on finding some solution. That's great. That's because great. Yeah. otherwise, it's a child's burden. Uh-huh. You know? Uh, you cannot just, you know, you cannot just, uh, you know, if you have different languages, for instance, you have to decide what is the couple's language as far as raising children. And it could be bilingual, it could be one language, but you have to make a decision. You cannot say, oh, we're not going to talk to the child. And as soon as a child talks, he will decide what language he talks. Mm-hmm. It would be ridiculous. He will never talk. Uh-huh. So uh, this is really the uh, difference between the horizontal, the symmetrical kind of establishment of myths, establishment of common goals, and caring about posterity, caring about the rights of posterity to be considered and to find solutions for posterity rather than posterity find solutions for the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that basically in, yeah. in, in, in the summary of contextual therapy, if I ask what is, you know, what is the two um how do you say finishing goals you know like when you know that Mm -hmm. you're done well for couples i mean we had um, couples and families we had um, pizzeria next to our our office and you say okay if you can talk at the pizza place the same way you talk in the office you're done you know if you can Mm -hmm. each of them can listen to the other respect the side of the other uh and uh accept that they have a different point of view but they can live with that and can engage in a diet then you, you don't you know go to the pizza place don't waste your money on therapy that's great now, <laughs> on the other end for parents and children it is the summary is that you should give more to the child than you take from the child that the giving should go from the old generation to the future generation you're not pumping understanding from the next generation to understand the old generation. So once you have this reverse that the child, you know, the people come to your office because of pathologies that most of the time result from these problems with parentification. I'm talking about family therapy. So once you have this kind of parentification and the child starts to act out, you know, that's maybe the last very small thing I want to say in my experience of work, you'd ask in, in some prior question about my, what I took from contextual therapy. So for me, what I take, took or take, was really in my work with kids with conduct disorder, which has been my speciality. And we know that youth with conduct disorder can be extremely discouraging to therapists because they don't respond well to individual therapy. They are usually very impatient in, in, in family therapy. Or you meet them after the family, you know, that I've met kids who are, I worked with kids 14 to 21. The 18 to 21s often were discharged from juvie, as they say, juvenile detention mm-hmm. centers or residential program. They were cut off from families. And the characteristic from conduct disorder is that they take 
the, the, uh, you know, the, the, all the antisocial criteria of DSM is in terms of taking, you know, mm. basically stealing, beating, so uh, not respecting the rights of others. If you mm-hmm. summarize, simplify criteria is not respecting the rights of others. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's extremely difficult to engage them in therapy. Now, once you understand destructive entitlement, you understand the right to give, you understand right to give in terms of right to earn constructive entitlement. If you address these young people as people who have been deprived because of their revenge, you know, they have been hurt by injustices, often parentification, it results in destructive entitlement, it results in hurting others, But what is also the consequence? It results in hurting them by not being able to give and by being deprived from opportunities to earn constructive entitlement. Mm -hmm. That's a very big damage. So once as a therapist, you can recognize this to say, look, well, everybody knows that you're treating people horrible. That's why you went to juvie. That's why you went blah, blah, blah. That we know you, you know, that's what you did. But did do did people ever talk to you at what it does to you that you you are cut off from the wish to give? Mm. You remember one time when you were a kid where you were happy to make a little present for your mother's Mother's Day or help another kid in school, etc., and you felt good about it. When is the last time you felt good about giving? Mm. And sometimes it's way back in the past, but they are extremely moved by that. Wow. And that is a tremendous therapeutic resource that I would have never had as a psychiatrist nor a psych- psychotherapist of any kind of school. This is really specific to contextual therapy. Mm, beautifully That's said. Really, really what I gained from contextual therapy. So again, for people to discover that they gain from giving and that from parents gain from taking the risk of still giving to their children, even if they didn't receive. Mm. Once they can do that, get the taste of it, you know, then you're done. Wow. That's so great. And you gave so much to me in this interview. I mean, we have been in quite a process here of, of getting me up to speed in being able to have a conversation with you about that. And I so appreciate um, the time that you've taken and the way that you have um, uh, just the, the way that you've explained all of this is really wonderful. Thank you. And I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to do that. And that, uh, I hope that it will be helpful to you and your colleagues uh, who can listen to that. And I really thank you really very much because of your willingness to work with me and to offer me a voice, you know, in a part of the country that I don't visit too often and maybe even a bit more than just California. I hope that some other people could listen to this uh, also. And one thing I want to add, because you had asked about uh, how to become a contextual therapist. Yes, yes, I'm glad you get into that. So, in fact, you know, of course, then even just hearing this thing and thinking about it, you know, that this is a dimension that we all know about, but we don't, we fear venturing into. We are fearing to say, to talk about unfairnesses because we may feel that we will become overwhelmed, yeah. you know. So, in that sense, to learn about multidirected partiality. Also, one thing I want to add is what I would call the realistic humanism, because one of the problems when you work with difficult situations like kids with conduct disorders or extreme parentification in difficult parent-child relationships, 
you have either an attitude of being overly optimistic, oh, I'm sure this parent is not as bad as they are. I'm sure that they don't parentify their children as, as bad as it could be, you know. Uh, and then you say, oh, I'm sure you can do better, which is parentifying the, ch the client to say, I'm sure you can do better. Then it does a client owe you to do better because you said so, mm -hmm. you know. So basically, the the fact of not having any illusions in a way that people can be better than what they are, but at the same time, never giving up on the humanism. And that, uh, to, that they, are human, they are human beings, they can rediscover the benefits of giving. And so what I would call realistic humanism uh, needs, that requires some maturity because it's difficult to maintain this both position that you're very realistic in terms of what bad could happen mm -hmm. and you still give a chance to the good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit more difficult. You know, like for instance, with these kids with conduct disorder, I was very precise in making sure that they cannot hurt me, for instance, you know, that there's no, uh, the, the weapon that I was fearing the most was the stapler, because if a kid gets really mad and grabs a stapler right. and throw it to your face, it's not exactly right. right. So for instance, I would make sure that my office would be devoid of anything that could fly out of partiality. It's another form of partiality to the client to give them a chance to succeed mm -hmm. by creating circumstances where they are least likely to fail. Wow. Uh-huh. And I'd imagine that in order to develop this maturity, you, uh, one way to do it is to begin to focus on fairness and to be really, to, to begin to keen your ear towards that and not, and not just, and, and, and make a space for it. Correct. And also, again, to be modest in terms of, you know, one danger of being a therapist, we all, I mean, I say, first of all, we all deserve destructive entitlement. There's nobody that's immune to it. We have small and big destructive entitlements. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, uh, you know, we have destructive entitlement that we don't act on, but we know it's kind of lurking there, but we try not to act on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we are in the profession, helping profession, we're quite likely to have been very well practicing as parentified children. I mean, yes. that's uh, quite known in the field, you know. Mm -hmm. So one danger would be to parentify our clients in proving us right by getting better. I say that again? In proving us right by clients getting better I for see. us, not uh -huh. for themselves. Uh -huh. And somehow it's, that is a, a part of therapy when supervision, just finish with this example, uh, that one student was very upset because uh, I couldn't have the equipment to, show, uh, to watch the tape of her session. And she said, it's horrible because this session was so good. I wanted to show you how good the therapist I was and I cannot do it because the machine is not in the room. <laughs> and I said, look, this is the end of supervision. If you need to prove yourself that you're a good therapist to me, we are going to talk about it. I don't need to see your session. Mm -hmm. you know? to uh, really uh, that maturity also to accept that we do the best we can, but we cannot ask our clients to get better, to make us feel better. Mm -hmm. mm. Wow. Okay. Well, this was great. Uh, I, so, I so appreciate the time and um, people go out and, and discover contextual therapy. It is really, really rich and there's so much to learn. So Catherine, thank you so much for your time today and, uh, and thank you. Welcome.